All right, it is time for uh, my favorite time of today. Uh, spend some time unpacking uh, scripture. Uh, today we're going to be in the, the Gospel of Luke, 15th chapter, uh, verses 11 through 32. Um, if you have a Bible, you can turn there now. The Gospel of Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, verse 11 through 32. It's a pretty familiar story. When I start reading it, you may uh, already start to remember what it is. It'll be on the screens to my left and to my right. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my, fa- give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so I can celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who had squandered your property with prostitutes, comes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. I want to bring out my good friend, Chris Travis, who's going to break the word with us today. Uh, Chris and his wife, Lindsay, uh, come to Renaissance with their two ridiculously cute kids. Uh, They got their looks from their mom. uh, And uh, yes, he agrees with that. But yes, uh, he's a great friend. Uh, and one of my favorite preachers, so I'm really excited to get into today. Let me pray for him real quick. Uh, Heavenly Father, I'm grateful for my brother. Uh, I'm grateful for this time. I'm grateful for, uh, God, how you um, love us. Today, God, I pray that our hearts will be open to receive. I pray that we be free of distractions, and I pray that we be able to hear exactly what you want to tell us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks. Uh, yeah, Renaissance is our home church. We, we've only been coming for a few months now, so I'm still getting to know everybody, but um, Jordan knows me from years before this, so um, I'm really grateful to have the chance to do this today. And I'd like to tell you a story, an old, famous story 
arguably the greatest story ever told. In fact, that's what Charles Dickens called this story. He said it was the greatest story ever told. And Charles Dickens is one of the greatest storytellers in history. He's probably the greatest novelist in the English language. And he said this was the greatest story ever told. And I tend to agree with him. Uh, it's so old and so original, and it's worked itself out into so much of our culture in so many different ways that almost everybody is sort of familiar with this story. And especially if you grew up at church at all or you ever come to church this can't be the first time you've heard about this story. And it's so old and it's been repeated so many times in so many different ways that uh, when that happens to a story, they can take on a kind of mythic sing-song quality and they lose their teeth. But when this story was originally told, it had some teeth. It's so old that it's hard to even imagine a time before this story was told, but there was a time when this story didn't exist. Long before you were born, long before the English language was invented, long before the Bible was collected together, the Bible that we have today, long before the church was invented, this story was told. And there was a time when this story didn't exist until somebody made this story up. A Jewish handyman of unparalleled spiritual genius made this story up. And when he first told it, we know from the text that the crowd that he told this story to was a very diverse crowd. There were all kinds of different people in Jesus' crowd for all kinds of different reasons. There were buttoned-up, starched-collar, church-going folk, I mean, the experts. There were, you know, Bible college professors, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, and they were there for a whole lot of different reasons. Some of them really believed something special was happening with Jesus. Some of them were nervous about his popularity, and they were looking for ways to trap him. Some of them were very skeptical. There were skeptics and non-believers and people following him around just to see if he would do a miracle or do something exciting. There were some rough people in Jesus' crowd, rough prostitutes and, and tax collectors who betrayed their own people and worked for the Roman government and extorted money out of helpless widows. And there were gangsters and all, all manner of criminal and, and sinner. And there was everybody in between. There was honest, hardworking folk who who were sick and were hoping they might get miraculously healed or they needed to pay their rent or they were just plain hungry and they were hoping Jesus would multiply bread. It was a very diverse crowd of people. And so far as I can tell, every time this story has been repeated, and it's been repeated a lot in a lot of different places, whether in the vaulted cathedrals in Europe or the tiny country chapel at the end of a dusty road or here in a rented school building at a church plant in Harlem, it has always been repeated to the same crowd of people goes like this. There was a man who had two sons. Now, in those first few words, Jesus, in one quick stroke, he sets the stage, the major characters, and the essential conflict of this story. Now, this is hard for us to get because uh, the family name and land rights don't mean anything to us like they did to the ancient Jewish person. This is the people that God had taken and led into the promised land. And the promised land was a finite patch of land. And over the generations, whenever a father would die, hopefully from his perspective he had sons. That wasn't always the case. Sometimes it was given to daughters. But hopefully from his perspective he had sons to pass the family name on so that their name kept that plot of land. And the land was finite. So the second Jesus says there was a man that had two sons, his crowd knows, saint and sinner alike knows a problem is coming. This guy has to decide what he's going to do with his estate. Do you divide it between the, the two boys and then, you know, each generation it gets cut into smaller and smaller and smaller pieces? Normally what, what a guy would do is give it to his oldest son 
and the youngest son would just hang on and work for him. That's normally what would happen. But instantly, Jesus says that they know this is a situation. There's a conflict coming. And then the first surprise in the story comes. He says, the younger brother comes to the father and says, Father, give me my share of the estate. Now, this is out of left field. This is weird. Uh, this would be rude today, even in our culture. My dad, he's not wealthy, but he worked 80 hours a week for years and years and recently retired. And I cannot even imagine going to my dad and saying, you know what, Dad? Whatever you were planning on doing for me when you died, would you just give that to me now? I mean, my, dad, my dad's from New York. He, he would say, in the words of Justin Bieber, you can go and love yourself. There's no way... <laughs> There's no way. It's just, it's just rude. There's no way that my dad would do that. And also, there's the, where do you get off? You're the younger son. You're not getting this anyway. And also, there's a little bit of a, you're as good as dead to me. I don't really want you. I want what you're going to give me. So we already know who the villain is. His audience knows who the villain is. There's a man. He has two sons. The younger brother is the bad guy. He deserves the bad things coming. It's clear as day. And the father should say, by rights, the father should say, get out. You're not carrying my name. Get out. You don't want anything to do with my family, our land, what you want to take your stuff and go? Get out. And this is the next big surprise that comes in the story. Jesus very calmly says the father divided up his estate, gave a share to the younger brother. Now, that at this point, everyone's going, okay, where is he going with this? What is happening with this story? I think those that were very thoughtful and very in touch with the nature of God, um, the gears would have been turning. Because whenever Jesus tells a story, you have to ask, who's God in this story? You know, who am I? Who are my enemies? Who's the person I'm supposed to forgive? Who are these characters in this story? And of course, the Father is God. And I think they would have thought, you know, that is the way God is. You know, whatever you have, whatever your share of the estate is, you know, the, the advantages that you were given, the life that you were born into, um, and maybe you feel like it's not as much as you deserve. Maybe you feel grateful, like you've been given more than you deserve. But however much it is, isn't that the way God works? Hasn't he pushed it across the table and said, go? Is he walking alongside you every second? Like, no, don't do that. No, you have to do it this way. No, this is what, no hasn't he just given you what you have? and said, go do what you're going to do. I mean, isn't this the way God works? And this is the way the Father works in the story. To our surprise, he says, okay, here you go. And so not long after that, the younger brother gathers up his inheritance, and he goes off to a distant country, and the text says there he squanders it on, quote, unquote, wild living. Now, we don't know what that is. You know, we can fill in the blanks. That's, uh, you know, I picture him buying rounds for the whole bar. He's like sitting down at the blackjack table and putting stupid bets on stuff. He's, he's going and buying sports cars, cash down payment, but he can't make the payments. I mean, he just squanders it. He, just, he takes his father's name, his father's estate, and he just blows it on stuff. He just wastes it. And as life would have it, and life often does work this way, once he's spent it all, the economy goes soft. Everyone's in need. There's not enough food. There's not enough jobs, and he gets desperate. And the only work he can find to do is to go work for a citizen that owns land. He grew up on a farm, so he goes and finds work on a farm. And this citizen sends him out to tend the pigs, to feed the pigs. And this guy's so desperate, he's so hungry, that he, he longs to eat the food that he's feeding the pigs. Now, Jesus knows what he's doing. He's speaking to a Jewish crowd. 
And there is nothing less kosher than pork. There's nothing, it's not just dirty, it's, there's a religious profanity involved. And so there's nothing lower than longing to eat what pork eats. And Jesus is trying, what he's trying to do is he's trying to say, this dude is low. He's at the bottom. He is low, despicable low. To his crowd, I mean, that would have been clear as day. I tried to come up with modern-day parallels to help us get a sense of the kind of filthiness slash religious profanity of that kind of work for an upstanding Jewish guy in that day. And this is PG-rated programming, so I can't even share with you the ideas that I came up on my mind. It's just, it's low down. Jesus is, he's painting a picture of, this is low. Now, some of the people in this crowd are, they're like, I've, I've been there. Some of the people in this crowd are like, justice. That's what he deserves. I mean, he thumbed his, his finger in his father's eye, and now he took his stuff and ran out and just wasted it. Finally, some justice. This is the way that the world works. You obey the commands, God blesses you. You disobey the commands, God curses you. This is the way the world works. Finally, some justice. And then comes the next big surprise in this story. It says he comes to his senses. And I just love that phrase. I don't know if any of you have ever come to your senses. Um, but it's like a magical thing. Who knows? How, why does this moment happen? Why is it one moment you couldn't see what everybody else could see, and then all of a sudden... You come to your senses, and what has been clear to the people around you is now suddenly clear to you. But he comes to his senses, and he's starving, and he says, look, the guys that work for my father, they have food. I'm, if I'm going to work for somebody, you know, maybe I can no longer be his son, but if I'm going to work for somebody, let me go work for my father, because his servants at least are eating. And so he starts to rehearse this speech in his mind. He says, okay, I'm going to go back to my father. I'm going to tell him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and I've, I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I get that now. But will you take me on as one of your hired workers? And he gets up the courage to do it, and he gathers himself up, and he makes this long journey home back to the father to give this speech. Now, we know how this should go. It should be a door slammed in his face. But then Jesus says, while he was still a long way off, the father sees him. He's waiting for him, and he's watching for him. And while his son is still a long way off, he runs out to greet him, and he throws his arms around him. And the son tries to get his speech out. He's like, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against earth. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but would you please take me on as one of your hired servants? And it's like the father doesn't even hear him. He calls the servants, and he says, put our best robe on him, put sandals on his feet, Go get the family signet ring and put it on his finger. Go slaughter the fattened calf and get everyone together because we have to have a huge barbecue. We have to have a huge party because this son of mine that was lost is now found. He, he was dead and now he's alive. Everybody's got to celebrate. And so the whole estate gets together, servants, family members, everybody, and they start having a huge party with music and dancing and everything. Now, this is an amazing story. And at this point in the story, I think that his original audience would have been stunned. I think those, of, those among the crowd who had colored way outside the lines, maybe they felt their hearts beat a little faster. I think the really upright people who were really focused on fairness were scandalized. And I think those that were most thoughtful spiritually, who were most in touch with what God was like, might have been silent, deep in thought. Because what Jesus has done is he has masterfully painted a picture 
of what repentance meant and means to the Jewish believer of his day. So the word in the Old Testament, which is the Jewish Bible, what we call the Old Testament, that is translated as repent, is the word teshuva. Now, I'm out of my depth here, so I'm not going to pronounce these things right. But, but this word, it appears about a thousand times in the Old Testament, and it's only translated as repent a few times. Mostly, it's translated more appropriately as return. The Jewish idea of repentance was to return. It was a geographical metaphor. So the Jewish idea of sin was, here's God, you're with God. Sin is you've left God and gone out to the distant country And sin is a byproduct of having left God. It's something that happens to you when you go away from God. And when you come back to God, the name for that, of returning to God, is repentance. When you return to God, it's repentance. And this is a really important concept for us to get today because there are a lot of people, maybe people in this room right now, and certainly myself at different points in my life, who you want to return to God, you want to be close to God, but you don't want to repent. And that's like saying, I want to go home after the service, but I don't want to go home after the service. That repentance is the name for returning. And so if there's this area in your life, and trust me, I have felt this. If there's an area in your life, don't talk about how I use my time or who I I date or what my dreams are for my future or my money. If you don't, this this thing, I, I want to be close to you, God, but we're not going to talk about that. If there's an area that you won't bring to God, don't be surprised if you don't feel close to God. But don't make the mistake of thinking it's because God doesn't want you. It is not as if God is over here like, you know what? Once you repent, then, then come talk to me and, and we'll see what we can work out. It's not like that. That's not the picture that Jesus paints. The Father is watching and waiting. As soon as he sees the Son a long way off, he runs to him. He runs to him and gets him. It's not like God is saying, you know, once you repent, then we can have a conversation. He's praying for it. He wants the son to return. It's not because if you are in that situation, it's not because God doesn't want you. It's because you don't want God. Now, that leads us to the Greek idea of repentance because You know, he's been talking to a Jewish crowd, and he's painted this picture of this Jewish idea of repentance, but he's speaking in the Greek language. The New Testament that we have is recorded in Greek. Um, Jesus is telling this story in Greek. And the Greek idea of repentance is a little bit different, but also rich, and it kind of comes into play in this story. The Greek word for repentance is metanoia, one of the Greek words for repentance. And metanoia means it's more in your head. It's more like to change the way you think. Or... um, some people say it even goes beyond thought, and it, it's more like having a heart change, to change your mind or to change your heart. I like the phrase in the story when Jesus says, he came to his senses. I think that's the metanoia. Now, this is actually the third story Jesus has told to this very diverse crowd of people. He, the, the first two are famous. You've probably heard them too. He says, the first story, there was a shepherd that had 100 sheep, and one of them wandered off. Won't he leave the 99 sheep that are safe and sound to go search for the one that is lost? And, and if and when he finds that sheep, won't he be so overjoyed that he'll gather up all his shepherd buddies and they'll have a whole celebration that he found his lost sheep? And then Jesus says, in the same way, the angels in heaven celebrate when one sinner metanoias, when one sinner repents, has a change of heart. And then he tells a story about a widow that has 10 coins. It's all she has to live on, and she loses one of them. She loses a tenth of all she has to live on. Won't she sweep the whole house? 
move the furniture to try to find that one coin. And if she does find that coin, won't she call all of her friends together and throw a celebration? Like, thank God I found that lost coin. And, and then Jesus says, in the same way, the angels in heaven will celebrate over one sinner who metanoias. And then he tells this story, which leads us to act two. Everything we've heard so far is act one of this story. And uh, if that was all there was to this story, it would be the most powerful story about grace probably ever told. But there's a deeper level, and that's where Jesus takes us in act two. There's the older brother. We kind of forgot about him. The text actually says, meanwhile. I think that's funny. Meanwhile, the older brother is out in the fields, and he's working, and he comes near the house, and he hears the sound of celebration in the house. Now, he's out by his own choice. He's out in the fields working, and he comes near the house, and he hears the sound of the text says music and dancing in the house. But he won't go in. He calls for one of the servants to come out to him. The servant comes out to him. He asks the servant, what's going on? The servant says, haven't you heard? He's the last one to find out. Haven't you heard? Your brother came home. Your father has slaughtered the fattened calf. We're having a huge party. Everybody is celebrating. The older brother is not excited about this. In fact, he seethes with anger. He's furious. And he refuses to go into the party because this is not fair. And honestly, truly, it's not. This is not fair. So he refuses to go into the party. The father leaves the party and comes out to him and tries to convince the older brother to come into the party. First, he listens to him. The older brother says, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. His words, all these years I've been slaving for you and I never disobeyed your commands and you never even gave me a goat to celebrate with my friends. Now, I don't really know the value of a goat versus a fattened calf, but obviously a fattened calf is better than a goat, so he's mad about that. You never even gave me a goat to celebrate with my friends, but when this son of yours, read it and watch the pronouns. You can read it on your own. He says, when this son of yours, not when my brother. He says, when this son of yours came home, you slaughter the fattened calf when this son of yours who squandered your wealth on prostitutes, he says. Now, we don't know that. The text doesn't say that. He, he said that. The older brother said that. When this son of yours who squandered your wealth on prostitutes comes back, you slaughter the fattened calf. He's furious. Now, the, the father says, son, everything I have is yours. And he means that literally. He divided his estate. He gave half to the younger brother and half to the older brother. The younger brother spent his Everything that's left is the older brother's. He means that literally, son, everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate. We had to celebrate because, read it on your own, this brother of yours was lost and now he's found. He was dead and now he's alive. We had to celebrate. Now here Jesus taps into that church-going crowd in his audience who are looking down their noses at that rough crowd that's there in, in his audience. And he's saying that if you have an overdeveloped sense of fairness, it can keep you from the party. That if, you, if you're too concerned about what's fair and what's right, you'll keep yourself out of the party. Notice that the father is begging him to come into the father into the party. He refuses to come in. He's the one that's slaving out and he won't obey it. And the father is saying, Take a fattened calf. Everything I have is yours. Or ask like your younger brother did, and I would have given it to you. But, he, he plead, but please, we have to celebrate. He won't come into the party. 
Now, this is really an interesting thing, this whole idea of fairness, because this is not fair. What the father has done for the younger brother is not fair. But what is fair? What is fair? I mean, do I deserve any of the good things that have come into my life? Is it fair that I, I have two parents that, that love each other and stay together? And because I, I, I just, the accident of where I was born, is it fair that I'm a white male that grew up in 21st century America? What did I do to deserve that level of advantage? Is it fair that I speak English, which is the trade language of the whole world? Is it fair that any of us speak English, which is the most powerful language in the whole world? Is that fair? I mean, if I got fair, if I took out all my advantages, what does God owe me? I think that God owes me like maybe a six-pack of Sprite maybe, if I took out all my advantages and then all the good that I've done. Like, God, God is like, when I was a human being, I never did anything wrong, and I gave my life for people who spit in my face. And, but you, Chris, like, sometimes you don't lie. I mean, what is fair? In the end, I can't add a day to my life. I can't add a moment to life. What do I truly deserve? Do I really? I deserve. I, it's fair for me to get everlasting paradise. I've lived my life in such a way that what I deserve, God owes me ecstasy forever. There's no fair. Now, I'm not saying justice is not important. I'm actually saying we, we need to be more ju- than just. I'm not saying we don't fight for fair or justice. Any follower of Jesus is going to care about justice, is going to be bothered by injustice, is going to band together to fight injustice and fix systems of injustice. I'm not saying that. What I am saying, though, is that if we don't aim for something higher than justice, we can't hit justice. If you aim for fair, well, then you're going to be bitter about that person that did you wrong. You can't forgive them. Or you're going to be bitter about that group of people that thinks that way, that votes that way, and how how do they get to be a part of this thing? And it's going to keep you from going into the party. The only way to even hit fair is we've got to aim higher than fair. We have to aim for love, which is another way of saying we have to aim for God because God is love. And if you aim for love, you'll get fair. You'll get fair. This guy, he can't even go into the party. He's, he's condemned himself to a personal hell in the darkness as a slave outside of the party. God is begging him to come into paradise. You see how backwards this is? But isn't that our predicament? So um, he's stuck out in the party, and he won't allow himself, it's stuck outside of the party, he won't allow himself to be happy, which made me think of a book that I read called The Top Five Regrets of the Dying, which is one of those books where um, you can go Google it and find a blog post that summarizes it, and that'll be just as good as reading the whole book, (laughs) because once you know the top five regrets, the book is a lot, it was kind of hard to get through. But I can't remember all top five regrets, but there's one that stuck in my mind. Here's how this book came to be. There was a hospice nurse, in New, I want to say in New Zealand, named Bronnie Ware, and she, for years, she shepherded people through their last 12 weeks of life, and she was a gutsy little woman. She started asking people real questions about their life, and one of the things that she asked them is, what do you regret? If you could go back and live it over again, what do you wish you could do differently? Which I would never have the courage to ask a question like that, but she she gave these people the dignity of a chance to really respond to real questions. And she started to notice these patterns that people had the same regrets. And so she published this book, The Top Five Regrets of the Dying. It was, people kept saying the same things. And one of those top five regrets was very specifically how it was worded. People over and over again, when they were facing death, said, I wish I had let myself be happier. If I could go back and do this all over again, I would let myself be happier. How many people are going to get to the end of their life and 
wish that they could go back and just let themselves be happier. Bad things happen. There is a time to grieve. But how often are we in a, in a hell of our own choosing? How many times have I chosen status or pride or bitterness or unforgiveness or what's fair instead of being happy, instead of coming into the party? How many good, honest, hardworking, church-going people are going to get to the eve of glory and have that regret that, man, now that I know it was all going towards this, I wish I could go back and let myself be happier. But now this begs the real question, and that is, how do you do any of this? How do you, let's say maybe you're in the distant country, and you're like, I want to, I keep trying to, and I just, I want to return. Or you know there's some bitterness, there's some unforgiveness, there's some, I don't know about that group of people, to call them brother, no, I don't know about that. And that's keeping you out of the party. How do you return? How do you change your heart? Is that even possible? And that's what leads us to Act 3 of the story. And Act 3 of the story Jesus did not tell with words because it is too wonderful for words. And so instead, he told it in the language of his own life. Now, I'm stepping off into deep water here, so I I hope you'll be patient with me. But here's how Act 3 goes. There was a third brother, and he's actually the firstborn son. And he's the only biological brother. These two brothers we've heard so much about, the younger brother and the older brother, they're adopted. They're not even biological children. But the firstborn son was the only biological son. And he's, he's like a chip off the old block. He's so much like his father that they, they even look alike. They, they value the same things. They care about the same things. They have the same aims and dreams and hopes in life. They finish each other's sentences. And people mistake one for the other in the marketplace. I mean, they're like two peas in a pod. And um, you don't hear a lot about the oldest brother because he, he doesn't like to draw attention to himself. I, I don't know if he's shy or just humble or what, but he kind of sinks into the background. But when the younger brother got his stuff and went off to the distant land and squandered it all, um, the oldest brother, the firstborn brother, went to their father and he said, you thinking what I'm thinking? And the father said, absolutely, one of us has to go and help. One of us has to go make sure he doesn't kill himself and try to persuade him to come back. And the oldest brother says, that's exactly what I'm thinking. I'll go. You stay here and watch for him in case he comes home. And then he leaves, not like his youngest brother. Uh, He doesn't leave all the comforts of home to go try to get something better for himself. He doesn't leave because he wants what his father has to give him, but he doesn't want his father. But he leaves, and he goes to the distant country so he can look out for him. And he shows up in his life in a thousand different ways, disguised as everyday people, just as the Holy Spirit shows up in our lives in thousands of different ways, disguised as everyday people. And when the loan sharks come after the younger brother to break his legs, it's the firstborn son that intervenes and takes it. And, and when the youngest brother is at the pig farm longing to eat the food that he's giving the pigs, the oldest brother takes a job right alongside him and disguises himself as a co-worker and, and uh, gives him half of his food and starts to ask him questions. You know, what's your father like? Where are you from? Well, wouldn't have you ever thought about going back? Is that an option? And plants that seed in his mind. And, and then when the younger brother finally comes to his senses, seemingly by magic, not realizing that this has been nurtured in him by the oldest brother, and he starts to head back, and then he, he gets it twisted, and he looks back, and he remembers the pleasures and forgets the pain. It's the oldest brother that talks some truth to him and sets him straight. And then when he gets a little further in the journey and he gets discouraged and he can't take another step, it's the oldest brother that, that puts his arm around him and helps him take the next step and shepherds him all the way back to the Father. 
It is in light of this firstborn son that we see how far short the younger son fell, who wanted what the father could give him but didn't want the father. It's in light of this firstborn son that we see how far short the older brother falls, who wanted to work for his father, but thought his father was a fool and hated his brother. It's in light of this firstborn son that we see that repentance is kind of a miracle. I must do it. You must do it. You can't return without returning. You can't change your heart without changing your heart. It must happen. And no one's going to do it for me but me, and no one's going to do it for you but you, and yet I can't, and you can't. We need the oldest brother. And so I hope you realize that he's here. Wherever you are, I don't, I don't care if you're at the lowest you can imagine. I hope you know that Jesus is right there. And what you can't do, he will do through you if you will turn to him. And if you're at some point along the journey on the way back, I hope you know that Jesus is there. And if you've got somebody you can't forgive or some group of people you just can't get over or can't find a way to hope best for that group of people, I hope you know that Jesus is, is right there. And each of us, when we go back into our lives, let's shoot a little higher than being the younger brother or the older brother. And when I look back over my life, on any given day, I'm one of the two of them. I'll go back and forth between one of the two of them. But it's not my destiny, and it's not your destiny. Those that God foreknew would place their faith in Him, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Your destiny, if you start believing in Jesus, I mean, this sounds big if you're new to this or whatever, but your destiny is to become like Jesus, to become like the older brother, which means you become like his father. And so when you go back into your life this week, every single man, woman, and child with whom you lock eyes, remember that he or she has a father that is watching and waiting and praying that they will come home. He or she has a father that is ready to throw a huge party for that person. And if you are like your father, you will leave the comfort of your free time, of your own little world that you're in, and you will be a part of that. Maybe it's just listening, or maybe it's encouraging, or maybe it's persuading, or serving, or loving. But you will be a part of bringing the sons and daughters of our father home. You'll be rooting for them, praying for them, hoping for them, glad when they make that change of heart, glad when they take that faltering step back. Not angry that God would be so merciful that he would take them when they do, but glad and grateful when they do. And you'll do it not to get anything. Jesus didn't do it to get anything except for maybe, maybe, Scripture says, it was for the joy set before him that he endured the shame of the cross. And, and that's what you'll get if you'll do it not to get anything. Because the degree to which you become like the oldest brother is the degree to which you will participate in the very nature of our Father. And the nature of our Father is this, limitless, unending, creative joy. Who is having a good time in this story? Both of the sons are miserable. The Father, lavishly generous, throws parties begs people to come into the parties. May that kind of joy be yours and our Lord Christ Jesus. Amen. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. 
So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Uh, Please make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him, and he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you were always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, man. Limitless, unending, creative joy. Um, That is the gospel of grace. 